Welcome to the I-29 Moo U Dairy Podcast. I-29 Moo University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. Hi, my name is Jim Salfer. I'm University of Minnesota Regional Dairy Educator. On today's podcast, we are joined with Dr. Isaac Hagen. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota. I'm also joined with my co-host, Fred Hall from Iowa State University, and also Jen Bentley from Iowa State University. Welcome, all you guys. So, Isaac, do you want to do a little introduction of yourself? And I know you're pretty new to the University of Minnesota. My name is Isaac Hagen. I am a new faculty member in the Department of Animal Science at the University of Minnesota. So I just started in January, and I am also a new state extension specialist for dairy in the state. So I uh, grew up on a dairy farm in central Pennsylvania, a pretty typical dairy farm for Pennsylvania. We milked about 40 registered Holstein cattle, and that was a a really great uh, kind of starting point for me, just to kind of get my love of dairy cattle in and and really recognize this as kind of the industry I want to be in. So then I I went and did my bachelor's degree and my PhD at Penn State. During my graduate work, I I focused a lot on animal breeding and genetics in relationship to dairy calves and heifers. I was really interested in what we can do from a genetic standpoint to improve health uh, in those growing young stock. I'm brand new here at the U, so I started in January. And a lot of my focus here at the U is going to be in relationship Uh, to kind of those interests uh, in dairy calves and heifers. So I'm really interested in understanding efficiencies in in growing young stock and still looking at improving health and disease resistance. So what are some of the factors that that you learned when you were doing your PhD? It sounds like you did some stuff on feed efficiency. Can you summarize some of your research for your PhD and what are some of the you know, tell the listeners what they what you might have learned and enlighten them on some of the latest things. Yeah, so in my PhD, I actually mainly focused on disease resistance and health in young stock. The coolest study that we did during my PhD was we were looking at the genetics of serum total protein. So how well a calf is actually, how well are they able to achieve transfer of passive immunity. And we were looking at this in an organic operation. So I think one of the really cool things from this study is that we actually were using records that producers were recording. We essentially were working with these farms and we noticed that they were doing serum total proteins as part of their routine management. So we were able to go in and utilize those on-farm producer recorded records to kind of look at it from a genetic standpoint. So we were interested in heritabilities. Heritabilities are, you know, the percent of the phenotypic that is essentially due to genetics. What we were trying to see is, is this trait heritable? Is this something that, you know, in the future, potentially we could select for to improve young stock health? And, and you know, one of the things that we found is that, yes, it is heritable. And so that was a really kind of cool finding for us because there aren't a lot of genetic traits available for calves. And it's it's actually a little bit difficult to uh, select for traits in calves because not a lot is recorded on farm. You know, if we if we go on to a lot of farms, the, their records for calves and young stock aren't nearly as good as they are for cows. So that was probably one of the coolest things that we did. Um, and then I also looked at uh, some respiratory disease and scours and some looking at resistance to those disease from a genetic standpoint and, and whether or not we can select for those. So Isaac, I just had a question about the project on the serum total proteins. Just to clarify, you're saying the potential or the heritability of that calf's ability to absorb yeah. colostrum. 
Yeah, so there? About, okay. yeah, about 8% of the variation we found was due to genetics. There's some potential that we could potentially use records that producers are recording on farm and select for that in the future. Of course, that has to be implemented kind of on a national scale. The potential is there. What breeds were you working with in that study? So we were just looking at Holsteins. We did have other breed groups available, but in terms of getting the numbers that we needed, genetics, you know, we need a lot of animals for genetic studies. And so Holsteins were what we were able to get those numbers for. Yep. I'm going to kind of take a left turn here, uh, kind of on the same concept, I think. You did some genomic prediction work with crossbreds, dairy cattle. And is that beef on dairy crossbreds or dairy on dairy crossbreds? And, and what did you find? You know, during my PhD, I spent, I spent a little time at the USDA and the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding. And while I was there, they were trying to validate genomic predictions for crossbred dairy cattle. So these would all be dairy cattle. This was not beef on dairy. This would have been dairy on dairy uh, animals that are, are part of the milking herd. While I was there, they were trying to develop methods to essentially producers that are uh, genomic testing purebred Holsteins, purebred jerseys, purebred animals, but then they might also have crossbreds on there and they're genotyping those animals. But at the time they weren't really get, they weren't getting genomic predictions for those animals. So the, the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding and USDA were working on trying to, to provide a little bit more value to producers since they were already submitting genotypes for those animals on farm. What we were looking at is just making sure that the, the predictions that we were estimating for those genomic animals, those animals were actually performing how we thought they would in the farm. And so we were doing some validation with that. And essentially, they are improving kind of the information available on farm by providing those genomic predictions for crossbred animals over not having them. On these larger studies, I imagine that you're working with multiple states. I'm sure you've worked with James Coltus down here in the genetic side. But what kind of projects, uh, uh, big projects, are uh, uh, kind of in the pipeline now? So traditionally, a lot of the studies in my PhD were quite large. So we were using herds from across the United States. Um, so from Pennsylvania all the way to California, kind of as I move forward, as I get started, some of the things I'm really interested in are feed efficiency and growing young stock. And I think that here at the University of Minnesota, we're, we're really fortunate. We have a, a really interesting situation, the Southern Research and Outreach Center. So they uh, do custom raising of heifers for some commercial dairies in, in, in Minnesota. Um, I'm hoping to be able to utilize some of that data to look into feed efficiency in young stock. Um, so I was able to kind of get started on some of that. And we submitted an abstract to ADSA about that. And, and you know, hopefully that will be accepted. And then, you know, can talk a little bit more about that. Do you think we will be beginning to have more? I mean, there is a calf livability now, correct, with our genetic evaluations. Do you think we'll be getting eventually so when you select sires, you'll be able to get kind of, for lack of a better term, some health scours and calves or where are we in that time, Wayne? Is that a ways off? Because there's clearly continues to be pressure to not use antibiotics. And of course, the group of animals that use the most antibiotics on an ant per animal basis is those young calves. That's still a challenge on mm -hmm. a lot of our farms. So where do you think that will be in, you know, the future? The Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding, which publishes kind of genetic evaluations for on the national scale, they do have a heifer livability that essentially measures whether an animal will stay alive on the dairy or if that animal will die. 
That's published uh, and that's available to producers that measures uh, animals' ability to remain alive through 18 months of age. So essentially through their entire uh, rearing, almost their entire rearing period. I should also note that there are some private companies that offer predictions for calf scours and respiratory disease, as well as calf livability or calf mortality. Uh, so, so there are some of those predictions available to producers. They're genotyping through certain companies. I mean, I think it's it's something that's doable on the kind of the national scale. I still think we have a little bit of ways before we maybe get there. And some of that's just going to be consistent recording of these traits on farms. You know, on the national scale, it really requires producers to be inputting these events into their dairy comp and PC DART records so that it's available. Where are we going with genetics long term? I mean, you work in that field, and I used to work for an AI company, so I have a lot of interest in that area. But in 10 or 15 or 20 years, will the focus be a lot more on health traits, feed efficiency versus just, I mean, for a number of years, it was basically milk production. And of course, part of that was computer problems. So where do you predict we'll be in 20 or 30 years? Yeah, we're definitely moving towards kind of that health and efficiencies realm. I think, you know, a lot of the traits that we kind of develop over the next 10 to 15 years are, are really going to be related to those. The other area, though, is going to probably be in emissions of dairy cattle. We're also moving in that direction as well, looking at, you know, can we select animals that are, are going to produce less greenhouse gas emissions? So is that is that possible, do you think? I mean, do you think there's enough genetic variation? And to me, it would be partly a rumen microbiome kind of, you know, it's what bacteria are in there producing the methane. Has anybody done work on that? Uh, yeah, so there is work done on methane. Primary, I mean, a lot of that's been done in, in European countries so far, and there is genetic variation in those. There will probably be some potential to select for animals that have reduced uh, methane output. Part of that is just selecting for animals that are more uh, efficient. So Jen, you're kind of the calf expert on this call here. I know you've done a lot of work and have a lot of interest in calves. If you were going to give Isaac advice on something he should be looking at, what would you like to know more about from a calf standpoint, genetically uh, from a calf standpoint? I mean, there's just a lot of health components that go into raising calves. Obviously, the serum total proteins is one that's, you know, always intriguing. And I think producers are always trying to up their game on that level, trying to maximize colostrum. We try to get producers to evaluate colostrum quality so that they get the most bang for their buck when they're feeding those calves. You know, I was thinking about when you're talking about some of those heifer livability or calf livability traits, you know, what's that balance of, yes, we select for these genetic parameters, but then what's the management that goes along with it to, again, kind of get the most bang for your buck as far as maximizing genetic potentials. You know, there's a lot of management factors that go into making those genetics work too, right? Oh, absolutely. The great thing about genetics is that we can make kind of continual permanent change, but you still have to have great management to go along with that. And you still need to be putting those those calves in, the, in an environment that's going to let them thrive. I mean, we have significantly improved overall calf health in our industry. When I first started in extension, our you know, our calf mortality rates were high and we're, we're always reducing that rate. You know, as far as calf productivity, even into that first lactation, it wasn't very long ago that we didn't understand the influence of the dam. You know, a, a heat stress dry cow 
carries right through to the first lactation of her daughter, or actually first second lactation. So that kind of interaction with the genetics has to make your job as a geneticist pretty darn tough. Definitely some influences of uh, damn environment and things like that. You know, I, there's still definitely opportunity to kind of select animals that will continue to produce offspring that we want. We can, in terms of selection for certain genes and things like that. I mean, you know, and going kind of think back to Jennifer's standpoint, you know, even from the genetic standpoint, a lot of times the first step is actually is understanding it from the phenotype standpoint before we even start thinking about the genetics. So, you know, when I think about um, feed efficiency in calves, we still have some things that we can think about when we think about management in terms of understanding feed efficiency in calves and cost per gain. And, and things like that in, in young stock. Isaac, do you know, I know Europe has some evaluations um, on robotic kind of cow behavior information, like do cows visit the robots consistently? I know there's some evaluations that are that come out of mostly primarily the Netherlands. Do you know of anybody in the U.S. that's looking at that? Because as we continue to get more robots across the country, I think kind of robot adaptability, if that's the right term, will become more important. And it's not just always all teat placement and milking speed. There is some behavior. And if I remember correctly, it's maybe not high heritability, but more than you might think. Do you know as a council for dairy cattle breeding or anybody in the U.S. trying to look at that? So I know there have been a couple papers published um, from the university sphere related to that. I don't remember all the details related to those papers. But yeah, I know that they've looked at other information that can come out of those robotic systems. How how many times are they kicking number of visits, uh, those types of things looking at, you know, what can we gain from that? So I think a lot of that so far has happened kind of more at the university level. Just think there's a lot of interest in that. And it comes up a lot in in um, robot circles, as you're talking about that. Is there any other exciting ideas that you've got going down the future? You're, you're a young guy, just kind of getting started in your career, and you're laying awake at night in bed. Is there anything you think about from a genetic standpoint? That boy would sure be nice. I, I think of all of the things that have changed so much. You know, when you're like Fred and I, you've seen a lot, a lot of things over our careers, just from a you know, I think how many heifers used to really be kicky, that would be uh, just an impossible task. And now that's all gone by the wayside. I think calving ease has gotten better, particularly in our Holsteins. You know, a lot of that is related to genetics. So we've made a lot of genetic progress. I think oftentimes we don't give genetics enough credit for some of the changes that we've seen. But is there some things you lay awake and think, boy, you know, if I could create the perfect cow, uh, what might that look like? I mean, I think a lot about it. I have been thinking a lot about kind of, I have been thinking a lot about feed efficiency in, in growing young stock and, and what is the actual cost benefit of that. And so that's one of the things that, you know, that I think about a lot is, you know, cost of gain in young stock and, and really trying to understand kind of as we move to select more efficient animals, you know, what's going to be the cost benefit of those for producers. Has anybody looked, is that, is that, is that a correlated trait with milk production? I think it's really intriguing to me. As you look at that, is, has anybody even looked really at feed efficiency in milking cows? I know we've got feed saved, so we've been looking at that. Hmm. But has anybody, I, I suppose you're probably one of the first person that's tried to look at, is there a correlation between 
feed efficiency. So can we identify feed efficiency in a calf in the first 60 days and say, well, if she's feed efficiency and feed efficient in the first 60 days, then she will also be a feed efficient kind of a cow or would you, I would expect there to be a correlation. Yeah, I would expect there to be a correlation. There's some in, uh, there is data in um, growing heifers, not so much specific to the pre-weaning period. So the first, you know, if we're thinking first 60 days or, you know, that would incorporate pre-weaning period and then, you know, 60 days, you'd have some post-weaning probably as well in there. Um, But primarily that pre-weaning period. There's, so that, that time point isn't really well established at all in terms of the genetics of feed efficiency. But, you know, one of the interesting things I think about that time period, though, as well, is that you've got this animal going from essentially monogastric to a ruminant. And so I expect there to be some differences in there and, and potentially some differences in time period. So understanding, you know, if there's a particular time point in that pre-weaning period that would be in particular maybe correlated with later in life. So I think that there is some potential that maybe some later periods in the pre, you know, if we look closer to the actual weaning period, there could be some correlations with later in life. Yeah, I think anything we can do to decrease that cost of raising to get it in the milking herd, obviously, it's less environmental cost, and it's also improves profitability. And that's a nice thing about a lot of this feed efficiency data. It's a win for everybody. You know, it's kind of a win for environment, it's a win for the animal, it's a win for the dairy farm, and ultimately it's a win for consumers because it can help keep the cost of food down. It's a great way to promote your farm and dairy industry to consumers too. You know, when I talk to consumers and they ask me what I do and I say one of my interests is feed efficiency, they're almost sometimes shocked, but they're always thrilled to hear that. Yeah, I think it's true. I think we really need to keep working on all animal species. This isn't unique to dairy. It seems like over the last decade or so ruminants in general have kind of been in the bullseye as far as kind of their environmental effect and of course that's because of methane Mm -hmm. jen or fred do you have any other comments or questions before we kind of sign off here well i'm gonna throw kind of a left field ball here tell us a little bit more about you i know you grew up on a holstein farm family still milk do you spend your weekends out ice fishing or just tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, my parents still actually milk 35 cows in Pennsylvania. Actually, during my grad program, I, uh, I I lived close enough that I could go out onto the farm on the weekends. But now that I'm kind of living in the Twin Cities metro area, you know, getting out onto my family's farm uh, in 15 hours away by driving doesn't really quite work anymore. Myself, personally, I I really like getting outside and into nature. I'm still trying to figure out what that means in Minnesota. I am not used to kind of, I'm not a a winter sport person, but, you know, during the warm weather, I really enjoy getting out and and biking and hiking. Um, So I'm really looking forward to engaging in those activities, kind of moving up. Outside of work, you know, those are, you know, I love eating and I love cooking. So those things go pretty well together as well. When you moved to Minnesota, didn't you start moving in that really cold spell we had right before, right around Christmas time? I'm surprised you didn't pack up your bags and go home and never come back because I think, you know, this has been a kind of a tough winter. Kind of started early and January was really pretty warm, but darn, we've been getting a lot of snow this spring. (laughs) It ain't done yet, Jim. No, no, jeepers. (laughs) Yeah, the day I moved, I think the high was maybe one or two degrees. My brother had um, helped me move and uh, my brother 
lives back in Maryland on the East Coast and told me he would not be coming back to visit me in Minnesota again in the winter. <laughs> There's probably similarities of um, dairy farm herds from Pennsylvania to Minnesota, but what surprised you coming from the East to the Midwest about dairy operations or just, I guess, our industry as a whole? Yeah, I, I really do think there, I mean, coming from Pennsylvania, I think there are a lot of similarities with kind of this upper Midwest. I see a lot of similarities more than anything. As we move across these regions, we, we have a, a lot of tradition of a lot of small farms. And I think that these regions kind of all are kind of experiencing this shift towards larger operations, less smaller farms, trying to understand how these farms are still remaining resilient. And I think that that's a really unique challenge, I want to say, to the upper Midwest and kind of Pennsylvania and the region I grew up in is, is, is understanding how these farms all kind of work together and, and meeting the needs of a, a very diverse group of producers. I think, Jen, um, that's a good point. You look at Wisconsin, um, particularly central, you know, Minnesota, your area, a lot of really, and Pennsylvania, a lot of kind of more very traditional smaller farms, I would guess, at least in central Minnesota, not so much the other parts of Minnesota. We still have a lot of cows in tie stall barns, which, you know, in areas you wouldn't even really think about. And I would suspect, Isaac, in Pennsylvania, do you still have a fair number of tie stall barns? Uh, yeah, there are still quite a few. I don't, I don't remember the exact statistics, but, you know, Pennsylvania still has a, a has the smallest herd size in the US or well not anymore but traditionally has had one of the smallest herd sizes in the US. Yeah, so I don't know if we have uh, Jen and Fred do you have any last comments or questions for Isaac before we sign off here? Nope, just good to have you on board. Look forward to to seeing you out and about in our 29 programs. Yeah, so if you hear Isaac's name, Isaac Hagen's name, um as Isaac mentioned earlier, we have two Isaacs now at the University of Minnesota. And so I'd like to thank all our listeners for joining us on this I-29 Dairy Muyu University podcast. And I'd sure like to thank my colleagues, really all of them are my colleagues now, Fred, Jen, and Isaac for joining us. And then make sure you check the episode notes. There might be some links also for our sponsors. We really couldn't do this without some of our I-29 sponsors. So with that, I, again, appreciate all your time and um, attention during this podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. We'd like to thank our 2022-23 annual I-29 sponsors, Iowa Corn Growers Association and T. Lay Dairy Video Sales. Learn more about Iowa Corn Growers Association at iowacorn.org. Learn more about T. Lay Dairy Video Sales at tlaydairyvideosales.com. I-29 MUU is an equal opportunity provider. For the full non-discrimination statement or accommodation inquiries, go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.